Father, we all have things that are pressing in our lives. We all have issues. We all have anxieties. We all have uh, weights. They're also called burdens that press us down and weigh us down and can cast us down. But you invite us to cast all of our cares upon you because you care for us. The more we read the scriptures, the more we find out how much you indeed care for us. We're, we're mindful that um, we are not even close to perfection. And we're mindful of our failures and our shortcomings. And one of the ways that the enemy gets us down is that he tells us in subtle ways that we really don't deserve your love. He intimidates us by suggesting that in actuality you're angry with us. But if we're in Christ, nothing can separate us from your love. And there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We are so thankful for your love, which cannot be measured, which cannot be comprehended by our feeble minds. But we just take your word at what it says, that Christ died for our sins. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. That's love. Jesus who is God, the Son of God, who has always existed, laid aside his privileges and came to earth to become the God-man and to live a sinless life and to go to the cross and to die in our place. That's love. So we cannot listen to these wrong thoughts and listen to the enemy. We are thankful that through the blood of Christ we can enter into your presence at any time and cast all of our cares upon you. We can unload them. We can tell you about them. We can transfer them. We, we can literally just load them off the truck and leave them on the dock because you care for us. We're not passive, we go about our lives and we're supposed to be active and we're supposed to be responsible, but there are some things we cannot do. <clears throat> and when we cast these things on you, you take care of it all. In your way, in your time, sometimes we wish that your timing was in sync with ours, but you were not in a hurry. So help us to be patient, help us to wait Help us to realize that you know what's best with these afflictions. Even as we deal with them, you give us grace to handle them. And even as we carry the burdens, we're doing resistance training. It's working our muscle of faith. But we are thankful that you're mindful of us and everything that's going on in our lives. And you're in charge of it all. That takes a weight off our shoulders. It helps us to sleep. 
So in a few hours, when we crawl in the bed, help us to sleep well without that burden. Because you give to your beloved even in their sleep. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are continuing with our study on the Ten Commandments. We have been uh, working the Seventh Commandment pretty hard for the last six, seven weeks. The commandment, you shall not commit adultery, all those commandments, the Ten Commandments are listed in Exodus 20 and again in Deuteronomy 5. Uh, by, By a quick review, The commandment from God, the seventh commandment, as with all ten commandments, are for all people and all cultures and all times and all generations. Even if someone doesn't have a Bible, according to Romans 2, God has written the commandments on their heart. The commandment to not commit adultery is a protection of marriage. Marriage is the central building block of human society and culture. But we are living in times of great rebellion to the living God, and we are living in times of great insanity. And we are living in times where the family which God established and marriage which God established and gender which God established is all being ripped apart. We've talked about this for a number of weeks. Tonight under the aspect of you shall not commit adultery, which is a protection of marriage, we want to talk about being Christian husbands. The the whole idea of being a husband has deep roots in Scripture. One of the interesting things about the marriage relationship between a husband and wife, is that it gives a picture of the relationship that Christ has to his church. Ephesians 5 tells us. So tonight we're going to talk about the Christian husband. And I've got one, two, three points here. I'll go ahead and give them to you, and then we'll just work our way through them. Here's our outline. Number one, the big picture on Christian husbands, because there is a big picture. Number two, the basic components of husbanding. Number three, two counterfeits of husbanding. You don't often hear that word, do you? Husbanding. But uh, it works. Number four, the cycling principle of husbanding. Cycling like bicycle. C-Y-C-L-I-N-G. The cycling principle of husbanding. So let's go, let's go to number one. There's a concept for you. Let's start at the beginning. The big picture on Christian husbands. Let me quote James Dobson. He provides a great summary of the big picture in scripture of the Christian husband. 
He says a Christian man is obligated to lead his family to the best of his ability. If his family has purchased too many items on credit, then the financial crunch is ultimately his fault. If the family never reads the Bible or seldom goes to church on Sunday, God holds the man to blame. If the children are disrespectful and disobedient, the primary responsibility lies with the father, not his wife. In my view, God, uh, America's greatest need is for husbands to begin guiding their families rather than pouring every physical and emotional resource into the mere acquisition of money. That's a good summary statement. Even in Genesis, when you had the first couple in the garden, Adam and Eve, who really didn't exist, it's a myth, as you know, they did exist. You'll meet them in heaven. When they were tempted by Satan, it was the woman who sinned first. And then she brought the husband along with her. <clears throat> when they, when they, and something changed when they sinned, they, they realized that they were naked and they attempted to cover themselves and they attempted to hide from God. And the scripture says that the Lord came looking for them in the garden. And by the way, he knew where they were, but they were hiding. Interesting in scripture, in that account, he calls out to the man. Yet it was the woman who first sinned. Why would he call out to the man when she was the first to sin? The reason he called out to the man is that the man was responsible for the relationship. You see this all the way through scripture. This isn't a very popular idea anymore, but it's the big picture. God holds men responsible. Uh, if you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 5.22, this whole section just nails this down. In our day, in our age, there is an uh, indoctrination against this. It's interesting how many churches and how many uh, couples have departed from what the Scripture says about the husband-wife relationship. But in Ephesians 5, beginning with verse 22, we read these words. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Um, that can hit a nerve or so, you see. But it, it really shouldn't in its context. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. If it said, uh, vice presidents, be subject to your presidents, would that be a problem uh, at your company? No, because in order for a company to function and work, there has to be a hierarchy of relationship between people who are equals. In Scripture, men and women are equal. Genesis says male and female, he created them. In his image, he created them. Wherever Christianity has gone in the world, the status of women has gone up. That's a historical fact. We have this idea in America that to be equal 
means that you're exactly the same and that to be equal, you answer to no one. The fact that I remember as a kid thinking when I grow up, no one's going to tell me what to do. The older I get, the more people I have telling me what to do. I'm accountable to more people now than I have ever been in my entire life. When you're young, you think when you become an adult, you can do whatever you want. That's not true. We are a nation, uh, we talk about we are endowed by our creator. That's, that's in our documents. We are endowed by our creator with rights. In order for those who are equal to function, uh, in a church, uh, at work, in a school, anywhere, among equals, there's a hierarchy of relationships. You, in sports, you've got, um, you've got 11 guys on a football team. They're all pretty opinionated. They, they all are pretty driven, but they get in that huddle. And among those equals, one guy. Everybody else shuts up in the huddle because you don't have much time. Um, it's a hierarchy. You got head coaches, you got assistant coaches, you got offensive coordinators, you got defensive coordinators, you got, there's a hierarchy. It's how people function in every area of life. So if you're a vice president, you give an account, you are in submission to the president of the company. He's in submission to the board of directors. Everybody answers to somebody. In the marriage relationship, God says that the husband, as we're gonna read in just a minute, is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. That was understood, and that's how society has functioned for literally thousands of years until recent years. And now we balk at that. The feminist movement balks at that. And, and with good reason, every woman I have met who is a feminist has been taken advantage of by a man or deeply hurt by a man. And that's an aberration. It's not supposed to be that way. Uh, if you've got a boss, you've had good bosses and you've had lousy bosses. You've had bosses that care for their people and their employees, and you've had bosses that don't give a rip. Same thing can happen in a home. Ms. Magazine is completely against the idea of any kind of hierarchy in the family. They're against this passage. Yet, if you read the masthead, and I haven't looked at Ms. Magazine in a long, long time, <laughs> but the last time I did, you turn the cover page, and there's that first page, the masthead. They give all the names of the people who produce the magazine. They just don't give names, they give their positions. Executive editor. Assistant editors, associate editors, managing editors, and it even goes 
It's a hierarchy. The very thing they are against, they practice and they print. Because if they didn't have a hierarchy, they'd never get that magazine out on time. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Now, this is interesting as to the Lord. Why? Because the Lord has set up um, these relational, these relational chains, if you will. If, and this has happened to me on more than one occasion, someone will come in their car behind me pretty quickly, and they have two options on their car that I did not get on mine. They have lights and a siren. And they turn them on. Now, are we not both equal under the Constitution and the Bill of Rights? Yes. In that situation, that police officer has authority over me. And my job is to submit to him. I see the lights. I see the siren. What does that mean? He has authority over me, so we pull over. You see? That's how life works. Wives, you subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife as Christ also is head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. Don't ever forget that Jesus saves his people. That is uh, the key component of his leadership. That should be the key component of a husband's leadership. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. Now, would there ever be exceptions to this? Sure. Common sense would tell you that. So as a man ages and a man... I remember, I remember reading the biography of a great preacher by the name of Donald Gray Barnhouse. I mean, he was, one of the, he, he was on NBC radio on Sundays when the networks first started doing Christian radio. I mean, he was the preacher on NBC, 10th Presbyterian Church in uh, Philadelphia. Uh, A great communicator, great preacher. When he got into his 70s, he began to experience um, dementia. And not only did he pastor the church, but he traveled extensively during the week. He, uh, he was the editor of Eternity Magazine, so he would write articles late at night. Uh, he would travel, and then he'd swing back, and then he'd come back and be there on Sunday. But uh, And every couple, three years, he'd buy a new Buick, because he put a lot of miles on that Buick. As the first signs of dementia hit and how sad and how tragic. His wife told the story that one day he was coherent. The day before, he'd had a pretty rough day and wasn't. And he announced to her he was going down to buy a new Buick. And she said, great. And so they went down there. And he was looking at a brand new Roadmaster and was very excited about it. And 
you know, the salesman he had worked with for years and years, they're talking about it. And, um, and at a moment when he was looking at something else, she mentioned to him, he's having a very difficult time mentally. He said, I understand. Uh, they didn't buy the Buick. There are exceptions. Common sense tells us when. If, if a woman, if her husband comes home and says, hey, I found this pornographic movie, let's watch it together. Well, she's to submit to him and everything. Does she submit to him on that? The answer is no. Because you see, her first submission is to the Lord. You don't, you don't follow anybody into sin. You don't follow anybody. Sometimes it happens at work. I remember years ago, a guy probably late 20s was telling me a situation where he was on the road with his boss and they were meeting some clients and they met with him all day and the, and the, the client said, hey, let me take you to my favorite spot in town for dinner, we'll go eat. And they pulled up into this front of this place that was a very high-class gentleman's club, a strip club. And uh, this young guy's a Christian, and he's thinking, oh my gosh. Well, what do you do? He, he, uh, he couldn't go in there. And he said, he said to all the guys, he said, you know, I think I'm just gonna go back to the hotel, turn in early. And his boss said, no, no, no. He said, I want you to, this is important because we got to cover some more stuff. I really need you to be here. And he said, yeah, I, I, I just, I, you know, I think I'm going to go back. His boss said, I need you to be here. It's very important. What would you do? Well, he'd made a commitment to his wife. And he was a Christian. And the Holy Spirit was checking him. And he looked at his boss and he said, sir, I can't go in there. I'm going to violate my vows to my wife if I walk in there, and I can't do that. I'm getting a cab, and I'm going back. Now, that could have cost him his job. Probably a year or two later, I told that story at a conference in Houston, at Second Baptist Church, at a men's conference. Years later, I met a guy who was at that conference he said, you remember being at Second Baptist Church in Houston and telling the story? And I said, sure. He said, the next week, I came to Dallas. I was uh, meeting some clients at a, uh, it was a Toyota dealership. And we spent the whole morning together. And, hey, let's go grab some lunch. Great. And there were five or six guys, and let's go grab some lunch. Hey, we got a favorite place just down the road. You know, it's called uh, whatever it's called. And he realized, he realized it was a strip joint. And <laughs> here he is in the same situation that the guy was in from the story. And they're all excited. And he says, yeah, guys, you know what? He said, you know, yeah, I can't, I can't go there. He said, you can't go there. He goes, no. Why can't you go there? He goes, well, I'm a one woman kind of man. You know, that's in the Bible. And uh, I just can't go in there. It would violate my vows to my wife. 
And they go, oh, oh, okay, well, that's cool. Man, that's, hey, that's cool, cool. Oh, that's cool. It wasn't cool. They were freaked out. They didn't know what to do. Now, he wasn't going to get fired, but <laughs> you know what's interesting about that? The young guy who could have lost his job, he wasn't thinking about anything else except his vows to the Lord and to his wife. He did the right thing. He happened to mention that to me a couple years later without naming names or anything. I mention it. It's interesting how God works. You never follow anyone into sin. I don't care if it's your boss. I don't care who it is. Yeah, go ahead and sign this. And you know the numbers are wrong. You don't sign it. You don't submit to, to someone in authority when they're asking you to do what's wrong. Your first submission is to Christ. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now that is a loaded verse. So I'm to love my wife. I am. This takes it up about 100,000 notches from what the world usually means when they talk about love. Love songs, um, love stories, uh, all that stuff. This is supreme love. Husbands, love your wives. Now watch this. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is, this is not a uh, lovey-dovey Hallmark Channel uh, kind of love. Th this is a serious gut level kind of love that could cost you your life. That's what this is. Because it's modeled after what Jesus did. A long time ago in a galaxy far away that just came into my head for some reason. <laughs> uh, uh, when I was in college there was, uh, you see these commercials for this, there was this outfit called CyberVision. And they sold videotapes. And what they would do, they would take a great golfer or they would take a great bowler or they would take a great, some athlete, and you'd buy the videotapes, you know, put it in your machine, and you'd watch these guys and you'd just watch them. You, it, it, if it was bowling, you would watch. You, you, you would watch their footwork. It, the guy who came up with this literally was in college. His name was Steve Devore. He was in college. He's missing around some Saturday afternoon. He's watching bowling on TV, and for some reason, he got. How does that guy throw a strike almost every time? He started watching him. And he just kept, he watched his feet. And then after, the guy's footwork was exactly the same. Lead step was always the same. Then he started watching his, uh, his release. He watched this for about 30, 45 minutes. Got in the car, drove down to the bowling alley. 
He had never bowled over 140 in his life, and he bowled 230. I might not have those numbers exactly right, but they're pretty close. And that's what put him on to that whole thing. And the concept behind CyberVision is that you do it just as that guy who's world class. You watch him and you emulate him. Now that's out of scripture. And it's not about being an athlete, it's about being a husband. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up, died for her, took the blows, took the hits. C.S. Lewis, in one of his books, talked about the concept of getting crucified for your wife. Comes right out of this. You take the blows, you take the hits. Doesn't that raise it up? Yeah, it does. Oh, and by the way, what wife would have trouble following a man who loved her like that? In, in the last couple of years, all this has come out about men, powerful men, and their abuse of women, using, you know, requiring sexual favors in order to give a role or a slot in a movie, all this, you know, and then this, this thing, Me Too, oh, I've, I've been taken advantage of, and yeah. That's not Christian. That's not godly, and we know that. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. Christ leads his people in purity. A husband should lead his wife in purity. So you're never asking her to do something that's contrary to God's word. So what you have here, this big picture of a Christian husband, based on this, this kind of man, this kind of husband who follows Christ, is a, he's not a self-gratifying husband, he is a self-denying husband. Because that's who Jesus was. It's a self-denying kind of love. Secondly, let's talk about the basic components of husbanding. The basic components. Uh, you know, there's a lot of confusion in our day because we've departed from Scripture. Um, so here's a basic question. What is a husband? Well, as uh, 
you know, as a, if you have a six year, if you ask a question, don't be surprised if your four year old says, Google it. <laughs> well, a lot of us have been around a long time before Google. What is a husband? Well, you know, one thing I did, I, I looked it up in the uh, Oxford Dictionary. Interestingly enough, if you look at the Oxford English Dictionary, which is kind of the bedrock dictionary of the English language, originally the term husband came from the word housebound. Housebound. And it referred to a man who was bound to a wife. He could be a peasant or a free man, not a slave, who owned his own house and his land. It's old English. Why would he be housebound if he owned his own house and was married and had land? Well, he had a wife and he had kids and he was housebound. Because you see, the house was associated with land for most guys and most guys were farmers and most guys worked the land in order to provide and to put a roof over the head and it wasn't just the wife and the kids, but they tended to live in extended families. So there might be aged parents. You would have children. You might even have uh, a sister-in-law who was widowed because a lot of men died early. You would have an extended family. And there was a lot to um, do in order to provide, and you were housebound in order to provide. You worked your land in order to provide and to fulfill the responsibilities that you had as a husband. You were housebound. Uh, you, you had to provide, you had to protect, you had to keep everything going. In order to do that, it required daily discipline and initiative because you were responsible for your family. So men were tethered and they were tied and they were roped to their families. Uh, you were doing your duty. The word, uh, the word husband, the word husbandry has been used in a lot of different ways over the years. There is animal husbandry Animal husbandry is the care, uh, the breeding and care of animals. Uh, shepherds care for their sheep. If you ever read Philip Keller's book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, Philip Keller had no interest in raising sheep, none. He lived in British Columbia. He, he took scraped every dime he had. He grew up in Kenya. He took every dime that he had, lived in British Columbia, bought some land that nobody wanted and really he had a desire to, to breed cattle. But after he got the land, he didn't have any money for cattle and all he could afford was sheep. He didn't know a thing about sheep. <laughs> that's why that's such a fascinating book. A shepherd looks at Psalm 23 because he was forced to become a shepherd. And you talk about work you talk about 24-7. Uh, it's not a mistake 
that Jesus calls his people sheep. Primary characteristic of a sheep, they're stupid. <laughs> they're also defenseless. Every animal in the world that I know of has some kind of defensive mechanism that God has built into them to protect themselves from predators except a sheep. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And Jesus is the great shepherd who practices animal husbandry. Uh, not only is there animal husbandry, there's land husbandry. You take land, uh, you fight erosion, uh, you use spreader dams. You, uh, this, this is what forestry does before they got politically correct. You see, there didn't used to be all those fires in California. They had fire, but not like now. When you lose your mind, you lose common sense. Uh, there are ways that you take care of land that make sense to preserve the land. There's a crop husbandry. You rotate crops, you till soil. In all of those situations, you know what the primary principle is? It's taking care. If you're a farmer, you're taking care of your land. You're rotating your crops. I have a friend that farms 4,000 acres in Nebraska. He rotates flax, alfalfa. He's always rotating his crops. Uh, he's taking care of that land because that land was passed down from him, from his parents. He's passing it on to his kids. You take care of your animals. The primary concept of being a husband is to take care. But in our times, we have men who take over. We have men who take advantage. We have men who take off. We have men, husbands, who just take. That's not husbanding. The job of a husband is to take care. Which leads us to the third point, which would be two counterfeits of husbanding. There are more than two, but we'll just hit two. Uh, the first one would be the passive husband. The passive husband. Uh, the, the passive husband is, um, is irresponsible. The whole concept of of husbanding is the same concept of being a man. To be a man is to be responsible. To be a man is to take initiative. To be a man is to do the next right thing. It's what you do. You can't be passive and be a man. You can be a man physiologically, but you're not really a man. You're not functioning as a man. Passivity um, is a waste. Passivity means you're a sluggard. Passivity means that you will not do the task that you are called to do by God. Uh, passivity means you check out. Passivity means uh, you're about yourself. You see no passivity in Jesus. His love is active. 
It's sacrificial. It gives, it cares, it listens. Uh, Another counterfeit would be the uh, tyrannical husband. The tyrannical husband is one who is uh, who loves his position and is aware of his position uh, in the hierarchy and reminds uh, those in his family constantly that he has been given by God a position of authority. But he uses it wrongly. He uses it not he uses it not as Jesus used it. He used it he uses it for his own gain and his own self-gratification. Husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up. The tyrannical husband wants everyone else to give up what's best for them for him. He's got it completely reversed. He's authoritarian. He cannot be questioned. His word is law. He listens to no one. He is not accountable. He doesn't take counsel. He who walks with wise men will be wise. He's not listening to anybody. Uh, he, this, the tyrannical husband is a fraud if he says that he is a Christian. He's an absolute fraud. He's self-centered. There's a guy in 3 John, 3 John 9. We talked about this guy before. Uh, I wrote, uh, there are two leaders in 3 John that are a contrast. Uh, The first guy is Gaius in verse 1. So the apostle John says, uh, the elder, that's him, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Um, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. Watch this. For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth. That is how you are walking in truth. So what was the reputation of this man Gaius? His reputation was that he walked in truth. He took the word of God and he applied it to his life. He was living in sync with what God said in his word. He was an obedient man. He loved the scriptures, he took them to heart and he applied them. He is contrasted with a guy in verse nine named Diotrephes. John says, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them. Right there, you got a problem. (laughs) Diotrephes, who loves to be first. What does that mean? Who loves to be in charge? Who loves to be in control? Who loves the position of honor? Who loves to have it go his way? Who, well, who'll go on and describe him? Diotrephes, by the way, the word diotrephes literally means nourished 
by Zeus. Not nourished by God. Not nourished by Jesus. Nourished by Zeus. And this guy is definitely not nourished by Jesus, even though he's a leader in the church. I wrote something to the church about Diotrephes, who loves to be first. He loves it to be first in the church. That's called tyranny. Does not accept what we say. Why won't he accept? I mean, John was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was personally called. And the church is built on the cornerstone of Christ Jesus on the foundation of the apostles. The apostles had the authority of Christ, and he will not listen to the apostle John. Why? Because he wanted to be in charge. He would not submit to authority. For this reason, when I come, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words. The guy's got a foul mouth. He's a liar. He's a slanderer. He unjustly accuses us with wicked words. Uh, they, they, would, they would send out missionaries to these different areas, to these different churches. They didn't have hotels. They didn't have Holiday Inn. So it was really important that churches would practice hospitality. But the missionaries that John would send out um, Diotrephes would have nothing to do with. It goes on and says in verse 10, he does not receive the brethren either, and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. Well, who is he to put them out of the church? Well, he loves to be first, and he's gotten on, you know, the elder board, or he's the chief elder, or, and, and this happens in churches today. To this day, it happens. You, you'll meet guys on church boards who are, di who, and, and they might as well be diatrophies. It's not everybody, but you'll meet them because we got the wheat and the tares. You got people in the church who say they're Christians who are not. There's no fruit of the Spirit, there's no evidence, but they love to be first, they're full of selfish ambition. Um, Here's another trait of a guy who is tyrannical in his leadership. Go to uh, James. So Diotrephes is a leader in the church. Now, was he married? We don't know. Um, he probably was. If he was like this at church, what do you think he was like at home? Because normally you put your best foot forward at church. If he was hell to work with at church, he was a living hell at home. And this would describe him. Uh, verse 19 this you, of James 1. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility. Humility is not loving to be first, it's taking the lower place. That's Humility. Uh, Philippians 2, Jesus, even though he existed as God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to, but he laid aside his privileges and he came and gave himself. He humbled himself and went to the cross. 
Jesus is the model of humility. Jesus did, Jesus, hey, Jesus is God. He's supreme. Satan was a created angel who wanted to become like God, who wanted to sit on the throne of God. But Jesus was God. And what did Jesus do? He humbled himself. He left glory and took the lower place. And then it goes on and says in Philippians 2, have this same mind in you, which was in Christ Jesus. So when someone desires to be first and to be in charge and to be in control, that's not what the book's talking about. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. He goes on in 22, prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers, watch this, who delude themselves. Guys who are tyrants, who name the name of Christ, they're delusionary. They think they're godly. They think of themselves higher than they should. Yet everyone else has a completely different take on them. But can anyone get through to them? No. Why not? Well, go back to 19. James says everyone must be quick to hear. They're not quick to hear. They're slow to hear anything from anybody. That's a great trait, quick to hear. You could say quick to listen. Quick to receive counsel. Quick to receive input. See, in order to be quick to hear, you've got to be teachable. I've seen some men. I've seen some men that had a great influence on my life, and I appreciated their consistency. You know, no one's perfect. But there was a consistency in their lives and a teachability. And you see the fruit of the Spirit in their lives. And I've seen men who name the name of Christ with ordination papers and seminary degrees. I mean, who are little demons. Demons. I'm afraid of myself. I scare me. Because, see, it would be so easy for me to go down that path. So I've been pondering these verses the last few days. Help me to be quick to hear. Let me hear what I don't want to hear. Slow to speak, slow to anger. I'm quick to anger. I'm quick, I'm pretty quick. So I, I'm asking the Lord to help me here. And I'll be asking him until I take my dying breath. When you get in trouble is when you don't ask him to help you. Because, see, you don't need him to help you because you're already, you're already there and you've arrived. Uh, that's, and, and that's how guys turn into tyrants. Uh, tyranny is forbidden by the example of Christ. 
it's forbidden. That passage back in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus, hey, hey guys, Jesus never took advantage of women. Every woman who ever interacted with Jesus was safe. He never took advantage of them. He never manipulated them. They were safe. They were secure. They were protected. They were honored. They were consoled. That's Christian manhood. That's, that's the real deal right there. Women are safe with Christ, and they should be safe with men who follow Christ. The fourth principle is the cycling principle of husbanding. What, what is this? The cycling principle of husbanding. Uh, th- this would go back, let's go back to Ephesians. Th- this goes back because this, this is so touchy. Uh, th- this creates such a, uh, such a reaction in Ephesians when it says, and we already looked at it in 5.23, why is you subject to your own husbands as to the Lord? What you've got here, again, you've got a hierarchy. You've got president, you've got vice president. Uh, in, in a plane, you've got a captain and you've got a co-captain. The co-captain is thoroughly qualified to fly that plane. In fact, a lot of times, it's the co-captain who's flying the plane. Uh, two people entirely capable. One's the captain, one's the co-captain. See, this is everywhere in life. When, when you talk about the cycling principle, I actually saw this again yesterday. I was at a stoplight, and I'm waiting for the light to change, and I see a bike. You know, you see a lot of, a lot of cyclists these days. And I look and I double take because it was a man and a woman on the same bike. And you don't often see that. And they're just, they're just moving and they're synchronized. Completely synchronized. And then I drove and did a couple errands and I did this and then I, you know, I'm at another stoplight. This is 20 minutes later. And at a stoplight and I see something and there they are. They're just driving through, they're just riding through Flower Mound, just synchronized. You see? They weren't fighting each other. Uh, they weren't fighting over the handlebars. Uh, it, it, it was just synchronization. They were complementing one another. Uh, a while back, I actually looked up tandem bicycling. And there is more to it than just going down to the bike store and buying a bike with two seats and two handlebars. It, it is a, uh, it's a fascinating concept. Let me just tell you what I found. Uh, first of all, each rider has a different role and title. The man who is in the front is called the captain or the pilot. The woman who is seated behind him is called the stoker or the navigator. Secondly, they have different responsibilities. 
The captain is the one who steers, pedals, shifts the gears, and constantly communicates to the stoker when they need to speed up or brake. The captain is driving, but he is also in constant communication with the stoker. The tandem captain does not stop pedaling without first telling and receiving confirmation from the stoker. Otherwise, the stoker could get hurt. The captain could get hurt by the stoker or both. So they're working together. It's really important. This doesn't mean that the stoker doesn't have any responsibility. The stoker also pedals, checks the GPS on the cell phone, supplies power bars and water because they tend to go very long distances and you don't want to get dehydrated. It may not sound like a big deal, but when you're dehydrated, it's a pretty big deal. One other thing was emphasized several times in the instructions for riding a tandem bicycle. The captain and the stoker must trust one another. Without trust, they cannot successfully ride together. It comes right out of the Bible. And these are instructions you get at a bike store on how to ride together. I mean, it's biblical stuff. You got to trust each other. In our day and age, even in the church, you have, you have churches that say they believe in the inerrancy of the Bible and the Word of God that are absolutely, they teach against what we've been reading tonight in Ephesians 5. In fact, they are so committed against it that they actually will play games with the Greek word for head. And they will say it doesn't actually mean head as authority over another. It means uh, source, like the source of a river. But if you do the Greek research, as Wayne Grudem did a number of years ago, he took a sabbatical, the theologian Wayne Grudem, he took a sabbatical, I think it, it was either Oxford or Cambridge, and he looked up every usage of that term in all of Greek literature. Overwhelmingly, that word means head every time it's used in any Greek literature. The husband is head of the wife. Jesus isn't isn't the source of the church. He's the head of the church. That's why it's so crazy for someone to get on a church board and want to be first. It's not your church. It's his church. The church belongs to him. Piper talks about the relationship of a man and woman and how they function together. And it kind of fits the tandem bicycle thing. And he is giving some general principles about family life and about marriage and about husbands and wives. And he says this, I say this in general because in specifics, there will be many times in many areas of daily life where the wife will do all kinds of planning and initiating. Now, when you're a leader, it's your job to set the direction. It's your job to set a plan uh, that's part of being a leader. But that doesn't mean that the wife's gifts are ignored or are not brought into play. Um, I wrote this on a previous page. A good husband, while understanding that he is ultimately responsible to God for his family, recognize, recognizes encourages and mobilize, he mobilizes the strengths of his wife. Why would you not? 
So if you're a leader, does that make, mean you make every decision? Well, most leaders realize they need some help, and that's why they have people around them, and they delegate. Uh, Piper goes on, he says, there'll be many, many times of daily life where the wife will do all kinds of planning and initiating. That's sure true at my house, because my wife's more of a multitasker than I am. She can juggle 17 balls at one time. I got one, I got maybe two. And I'm not really exaggerating. And you get me past two, and I start getting frustrated. Because I get real honed in on one or two balls. I'm studying, up in my study, or I'm writing, and uh, I get interrupted. The first reaction tends not to be the fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> because I'm, I, I hyper-focus, and I don't want to be disturbed, and I don't want to be interrupted. But for some reason, she's been gifted by God, and it was probably because I needed someone like that in order to exist. <laughs> she can, in all seriousness, she can do four, five, six, seven, and she'll often say, why don't you let me handle that for you? Wow, thanks. Piper goes on and says, there's a general tone and pattern of initiative in the marriage relationship that should develop, which is sustained by the husband. In other words, it, God's called you to be a leader, so you lead. You, you got a plan. Now, do you make the plan all by yourself? Not if you're a good leader. Good leaders, good leaders pay a lot of money for consultants. And you want the best advice and you want the best wisdom and you got the best counsel, you, you want the best counsel you could get. If God's given you a woman who loves the Lord and has got a wisdom, why would you not listen to her? You see? That didn't make any sense. He goes on, Piper says, for example, the leadership pattern would be less than biblical if the wife in general was having to take the initiative in prayer at mealtime and get the family out of bed for worship on Sunday morning and gather the family for devotions and discuss what moral standards will be required of the children. That's the man's job. You're the spiritual leader of the home. You say, well, my dad, my dad never did that. Well, then you do it. Well, my dad didn't get us up and take us to church. No? Well, then why don't you do it? You can do that. I mean, you get them up to go to a ball game. You get them up to go to baseball practice. I'll tell you what, at my house, as I was growing up with my three brothers, Saturday night, we didn't do much other than watch Lawrence Welk and Paladin. And then we shut it down. And then after that, it, we got ready for Sunday. I mean, we got ready for Sunday morning, Sunday, uh, Saturday night. Because that was a big deal at our house. It was a big deal to my dad. So we'd shine our shoes, and we'd lay out our clothes, and we'd take our baths, and then my dad would get us up in the morning. He made sure we were there at Sunday school in a church. You see? <laughs> it 
I had a guy one time after a conference, I was in a parking lot. It was somewhere in the south in August, and it was hot and humid. That's all I remember. I wanted to get in that car and turn the air on. And I'm just getting to the car, and a guy says, hey, Steve. And I said, yeah. He said, can I ask you a question real quick? I said, yeah. I said, it's going to have to be quick because I, I have to get to the airport to catch a plane. He said, it'll be quick. He said, I, you, you know what I really have a problem with? I have, I have a problem praying with my wife. And I don't know what to do about it. I, I, I just can't seem to get over the hurdle of praying with my wife. I mean, and there are times I know I should, and I just don't know what to do. And I'm just so, I'm just so frustrated by this. And I, I grabbed his hand and I said, Lord Jesus, you hear this guy's heart. He wants to do the right thing. Would you help him the next time he senses that he needs to pray with his wife to do exactly what we're doing right now, to just grab her hand and pray a short prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So there you go. Did I learn that in seminary? No. I learned that from my dad. I watched my dad, there are certain situations and somebody needs to do something and nobody's doing anything and my dad would just go ahead and pray. And everybody was glad he was praying. That's what, that's what men do. You step in where there's a void and there's confusion and you just bring the truth of Jesus by calling on his name. Jesus, help us. We don't know what to do. Um, that, that's, that's leadership. A lot of guys uh, make a lot of money and have high positions, but they're not real clear on what leadership is. We find out about leadership by looking at Christ in the scriptures. Back when, uh, I'll finish with two stories about Steve Jobs. You know his story that Jobs and uh, Steve uh, Wozniak got together in their dad's uh, garage and started messing around and, you know, suddenly they start this thing called Apple Computer. And Apple takes off and does pretty well. And then they hit rough territory. And the board of directors fired Jobs. And they went through some different CEOs, but they were tanking. They hired a guy, a CEO, who had been very successful by the name of Gil Emilio. And he had had a real successful career before coming to Apple, but he couldn't stop the downward spiral. Um, Emilio said something he probably wished he could have gotten back. We've all done that. So I don't want to be too hard on the guy. But this is what he said. In an interview with a journalist, uh, and because it was published, you got a lot of attention. He was talking about his time at Apple. And uh, he was CEO, and he said, Apple is like a ship that is loaded with treasure. But there's a hole in the ship. And my job is to get everyone to row in the same direction. 
Actually, his job was to fix the hole in the ship. Right? This guy had been paid millions. Yeah, we're like a ship that's loaded with treasure. We got a hole in the ship, and my job is to get everyone to row in the same direction. <laughs> I wonder how much they'd pay him to speak at a business conference. But you see, that's not, that's not what comes first. If there's a hole in the ship, you fix the hole in the ship. You do the next right thing. Because if you don't fix the hole in the ship, nobody's going to row in the right direction. One other thing from Jobs, and I think this is interesting today because I see this with a lot of young, young, young couples. When they tanked and they asked Jobs to come back, he came back. And there were still a lot of people working at Apple. And they made Jobs CEO. But of all those hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people working at Apple, Steve Jobs was the lowest paid employee of Apple. When he went back to Apple, he signed on for a dollar a year. That was it. A dollar a year. The guy who cleaned his office made more money than he did. The lady in the cafeteria made more money than he did. The guy that from 12 to 7 overnight drove the little sweeper in the parking lot made more money than he did. I run into young guys who tell me, you know, my wife and I were both Christians and I know what you're saying, and I, but you know, she's got this job and she makes more money than I do. And I said, well, listen, Steve, and they may not be his name. <laughs> That's not what I say. I say, well, you know, actually, it has nothing to say in here about salaries. You've been appointed to this position. You've been appointed. Doesn't have to do with salary, doesn't have to do with this. You've been appointed. So this is how you need to function. This can be real threatening to women who have been hurt by men in their past. But when there's a guy who was seeking to love her as Christ loves the church and is quick to ask for forgiveness when wrong and is teachable and who loves the Lord and who really loves her and who is a guy who is not in it for what he can get for himself, but he is there to serve. This works. It works. When all else fails, read the directions. Let's pray. So, Father, we're all in process here. We all have our blind spots and our shortcomings. We ask that you would help us. Help us to be teachable. Help us to listen to you. Help us to be quick to hear you and your word. And if we hear the same thing from one or two or three Christian people that we respect in regard to us, may we pay attention to that. That's just another way of you getting through to us. Keep us on the path. 
If I'm wrong, Lord, make me right. Right with you. Set me right. And keep me right. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.